Well, Harvest, it is great to be back and so grateful for these last couple Sundays with Pastor Christian from Romania and Pastor Al from St. Vincent, as, as uh, Cody had made mention of, and so grateful for them and their ministry to us, encouragement and challenged us, just as well as I'm so grateful for you and what the Lord is doing and just a giving church. What a joy to be part of such a church family. And uh, I feel a bit rusty getting back in it, but here we go. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're returning back into our series through the gospel of Mark. Uh, Be amazed with Jesus Christ. Uh, I made mention the gospel of Mark is the Indiana Jones gospel of the Bible. I mean, it's just like action, action, action. It's bam, bam, bam. It's less talking and more of what Jesus is doing compared to the other gospels. And chapters 1 through 6 so far, we've seen uh, people are being amazed by Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is on the scene. Momentum is building. People are following him. Uh, Twelve have been selected to be with him, to be raised up, to become fishers of men, uh, tight with him. People are being healed. Minds are being blowed and leaders are being ticked off. And uh, it's really cool with what's going on. We're going to pick up actually the last chapter or last paragraph of chapter 6. And uh, we'll kind of set a little bit here and then dive into chapter 7. Let's pick up verse 53, chapter 6. You there? Awesome. Here we go. Verse 53. Uh, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. Two things. They crossed over. Crossed over from where? Well, if you go into chapter 6, they had the feeding of the 5,000. Then they had the crossing in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus walks on the water, the great I am thing going on. And so that's what's happening. The other thing out of that verse is I have the English Standard Version. It says they moored to the, to the land. What in the world does moored mean? Who has a new international version? What does it mean? Anchored. They anchored there. Moored is not really uh, uh, a me kind of term here, but uh, they, they anchored to the, to the land on the other side. Verse 54, and when they got out of the boat, the people, here we go, we've been immediately, every time we see immediately, we say bam with it. Everybody's getting excited about that. Verse 54, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately... They recognized Jesus and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And whatever he, wherever he came in villages and cities or countryside, they laid their sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Uh, just a couple things on here. This is kind of a summary of what's happening in this area and the whole area about. I, I could even say this is almost a summary of chapters 1 through 6. Uh, and one of the cool things out of this is the, remi- is the reminder that, listen, people are totally jazzed up about Jesus being around. There's all kinds of activity, all kinds of fervor and excitement and recognition of Jesus. I just, I, I don't think the text is saying this, but I just want to bring a reminder to us. Jesus is very attractive to people. And sometimes I think we can go about and think that people just like, no, 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 they, they just really don't know, want to know the real Jesus. No, no, they do. They really do. And this guy is attracting uh, the fervor going on. Now, that's one of the cool things, but there's a sad thing that's kind of taking place. In all the fervor and in all the sight, excitement going on, you kind of get the feel that everybody is stuck on the externals of things and are kind of seeing Jesus as this Willy Wonka miracle worker. 
Uh, and, and what they're doing is Jesus is going places. Everybody's like, wherever he's at, the word's out, and people are bringing all their family and friends to be healed. And I have to say, if I was in that day and I heard someone was doing the things that Jesus is doing, I would do it too, wouldn't you? I mean, especially back then, you didn't have a hospital. Or you didn't have the kinds of things that we have today. And if this guy's uh, doing these miracles, I'd be taking my family there as well. So I don't want to be too hard on them. But one of the things we're seeing out of this is I just asked the question, I think that's a bit sad, is where are the people that are taking the externals and taking it internal? I mean, really, as we've been going through, where are the people that are pausing and asking the question, who is this God? Who, where are the people that when all of this is going on are asking the question, who is this guy and what does this mean? Because this is not normal. Where are the people that are getting off of the externals and taking the externals and processing it internal, taking the whole thing vertical and trying to wrestle this through? There's lots of cool attention, but there's a sad amount of a limited internal processing Going on. One other cool thing, look at the end of verse 56. It says, And as many as touched his garment, Jesus' garment, were made well. And, And I think the thing to note here is even in light of the minimal amount of people getting it, of people taking it internal, Jesus is still loving on them. He's still loving on them. He's still being, he's healing people in this. And and these people are kind of treating him almost as this Willy Wonka miracle worker. And yet he continues to graciously heal them. Man, what a cool savior we have. What a cool savior we have. By the way, a statement as we go into chapter seven, I'd just say this, think this. We tend to get stuck on the externals. By the way, the roof thing. We know about it. We're working on the process, okay? Um, We tend to get stuck on the externals of life, don't we? We are a culture that gets stuck on the externals of things. We love the externals. We live the externals. Our culture uh, uh, builds up the externals. And the truth is we're quite light on the internals of things. And here we go. We're going to go into a text today, verses 1 through 23, and Jesus takes it internal. Jesus is going at your and my thinking today. Today is a thinking text. Let's dive into it. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, external focused religion confronted. Verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. You have the New International Version, it says they were unclean. It's not my favorite word to be using there because it makes it give especially an idea of kind of like this is a hygienic thing, but it's not. Uh, This is a a ritual thing we'll talk about here in a second. But they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. Let's lay some groundwork. The Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, Think of this. The Pharisees were the professional religious rule makers and rule followers. Uh, let's say they were the religious police. 
They were the rule makers and the rule followers of the day, and they were par none. And, and then the scribes, the professional Old Testament scholars and the professors, they were the ones who did the interpretation. Maybe add in some attorney into that. And I say that because as you see this, they love to argue and debate in, in the, the flow of what happened. So the Pharisees, the rule makers, rule followers, then you have the, the Old Testament scholars and uh, professor types, and they're on a hunt. They are not not there because they're like really interested in what Jesus has to say. They are there on a hunt like this. Uh, they are like the IRS coming to take you out. Okay? Show me your tax records. And you know they're not going through that to help you. That's not the vibe. They're going through to find out what you did not do right. So they can grab a hold of that. If you're in manufacturing or in business, uh, this would be OSHA coming to your door. All right, that's what's happening here for Christ. You didn't necessarily want these dudes showing up on your porch. So what do they see? Well, the text tells us they see hands that were undefiled. Now, we as people who do not are not that familiar with all the Jewish customs, uh we'll talk about that in here in just a second. Notice that verses 3 through 4, there's something wrapped around there. What what what's on what's there? There's parentheses there. A point here kind of out of the text, okay? Why does the human author, Mark, writing to Gentiles uh, through the Spirit of God, writing down God's Word, why does Mark put this parenthetic statement in here? Answer. To help Gentile people not familiar with Jewish customs to understand the Jewish custom. Point. God has always wanted his word to be understood. Those parentheses, we're going to see two more sets of parentheses. Every time you see that, just it's a reminder. Man, God wants his word to be understood by people. People of all cultures, all places. And it's just a cool reminder here. So let's go back to what he is saying. By the way, verse 14, Jesus says, hear me and understand. Jesus wants to be understood. Also, I'll just add to that, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. The scripture says, uh, uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Go on through the text. That every man, every woman would, would be, uh, uh, how's that go? Everyone would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is meant to be understood. God's word is meant to equip us. So let's understand what's happening here. Verses three and four. He explains the whole hand-washing thing. He says this, Gentiles, here's what I'm telling you. Uh, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe. Okay, so so what we're talking about with this hand-washing, this isn't just like they got one issue. They got tons of them. In fact, he gives a couple, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. All right, so here's the point. Mark is trying to help Gentiles like us understand who don't know the Jewish customs that the hand washing was not a hygienic thing. In other words, the boys weren't out, the disciples weren't out going through places and they had dirty hands and you're like, you're disgusting, don't eat like that because you got junk all over your hands. It's not that. What's going on is they're saying, wait a second, you're a spiritual, you say you are a spiritual people and these are spiritual guys and these spiritual guys are not doing a ritual hand washing. 
Now, what's the ritual hand washing? Well, well, to understand this, now let me just summarize it. Out of Exodus 30 and Exodus chapter 40, God gives a directive to his people about a hand washing. But know this, it's only to a certain people. It's to the priests. And God, back in the day, what he did is he had this intended objective for the priests. And before they would do the sacrifice, he told that the priests, not all the people, but the priests, that they should wash their hands. In fact, in the New Testament, the word there is fist. And there's all this talk about, did they do this or that? It doesn't matter. Okay. They, they were to do this certain hand washing thing. Why did God have them do that? So that they would be clean with hands when they handle the, the animal? No. It was an external device that God put in place to help bring their heart in the right place. And what was intended, and it really is, it's a very cool thing. The priest is about to go in and offer the sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, before you go in and do that, I want for you to go through this hand-washing ritual. And by the way, the whole objective of this is because you need to enter my presence with a clean heart. And we are external people. And God even uses the externals to help us process some things. Now, I think it's a really cool thing. And probably out of that, there were some others who, over some time, were like, that's a very cool image, a very cool representation of what should be happening on the inside by doing something on the outside. So, I don't know, it could have been the type of thing then where they then end up saying, hey, let's do that as a family, or let's do that as leaders because they're doing that and it's a very cool representation. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But uh, then what goes on is, is it goes on and it begins to get into spiritual people do this. See, see what's happening? If you're a spiritual person, now the ritual is becoming the issue, not the heart. And it got all the way over into the New Testament here in this text now where what all of a sudden ends up happening is in it, these boys are like spiritual people do this before they eat. And your boys aren't. So, let's correlate this to something because let's not just leave it in their world. Let's bring it to our world as well. Let me talk about just a couple things and make all of us uncomfortable Because might this be the type of thing that we might do? Hmm. Could we gauge people's spirituality by the external things that they do? Hmm. Like, for instance, spiritual Christians go to church wearing a sports jacket. True? (laughs) Or if you're really spiritual, you wear a tie. And if you're wearing a tie today, listen... Please, please don't mock people wearing ties today. That's not the point. But you know what I'm talking about. Now, let me take you to the other side of it. No, 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 no. Spiritual people, they bag the coat and the tie. Spiritual people today wear jeans to church. That's why I wore jeans and a coat. <laughs> okay? I got all bases covered. No, but isn't it true? And by the way, well, but, but we're supposed to dress a certain way because God wants us to wear our best. That's interesting. What chapter and verse is that? 
I think there's a well-intended thing behind it, and I get it, and I'm not mocking it. And I understand even the person on the other side where it's a bit of a reaction to that, where it's like, let's cut the image stuff on the outside. Yeah, and then we wear like really funkified designer jeans to show our stuff and cop an attitude in it. Or here's some more to get more uncomfortable. Spiritual parents will homeschool their children. No, 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 no. Spiritual parents send their kids to public school because they will only be able to really know how to stand before the Lord and the community if they go to public. No, 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 no. Spiritual parents send their kids to Christian school. Am I making you uncomfortable? Good. Uh, Here's some more. In light of what's happening Tuesday, and by the way, do vote. Be a people that is engaged in our culture. But I will tell you this. Everybody knows spiritual Christians are Republicans. No, no, no. Actually, spiritual Christians are Democrats because they care for the poor. No, no, no. Actually, Jesus would have been an independent. No, 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 no. Here's the reality. Jesus is king and lord over it all. Okay? And we get into these, we love the categories. Let me go a little bit further. Spiritual churches, spiritual churches have to have a cross on their building if they're going to be able to be Jesus' kind of church. And they have to have stained glass windows. And they have to have hymns. And they have to have a liturgical order. And they, 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 obviously they only preach out of the King James Version. And they always have adult Sunday school classes. No, 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 no. Spiritual churches have contemporary music that rock it out. That's what makes a contemporary, modern, spiritual church. No, no, I could just go on and on. The spiritual churches only do expository sermons like I do probably 95% of the time, but you could never do a topical sermon. No, 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 you can't do that. That's not good preaching. By the way, uh, uh, good churches preach for 30 minutes. We are a bad church. Okay, just so you know, uh, good churches only preach feel-good stuff of Jesus. By the way, one of the reasons I generally walk through books of the Bible is because it forces me and it forces us to come across texts of Scripture sometimes that we would normally just want to jump over. But I think you are getting the point of it. Verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, in verse 2, they did see a problem in their mindset, in their worldview where they were at. And they saw that there was the, the ritual hand washing was not happening and that they had defiled hands before God. So they asked the question. I actually don't condemn them at all for asking the question because this is where they were at and this is where they were thinking. And so the question of verse 5 is, uh, why do your disciples not do this as well? By the way, in the Greek, the form of the verb in the Greek says this. It's a present act of continuous. You'll hear me a couple times say that today. It, it means, why do your disciples, who are spiritual men, not presently, actively, and continuously walk according to the traditions of the elders. 
That's a big deal because what they're really doing is they're not just addressing one situation and one scenario. By the use of the present active continuous form of the verb, they're actually making this idea that, no, no, we are noticing this one thing and it's a far bigger problem. The problem is, Jesus, that your disciples are not presently, actively, and continuously all the time doing the traditions that the elders have said over a period of time. A question why weren't they fussing about Jesus? We've been observing in uh, your disciples and are presently actively and continuously following the written word of God. You see, what they've got on is what's called the oral law. The, the written law that I talked about in Exodus 30 and Exodus 40 morphed into an oral practice. Over time. And so this is what's going on. And so here we are in this scenario where men are pressing Jesus about what is right and wrong. And if we have our theology correct, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. And these guys are debating the second person of the Trinity, what's right and wrong. I put my money on they're going to lose. Okay? And I think Jesus has something to say about this. Watch his authority with the religious police. Verse 6. So Jesus responds and he says to them, well, did Isaiah prophecy of, by the way, the way that's formed, it's likely starting with a bit of a sarcastic reply. Okay, guys, game on. I'm glad you asked. Well, let me ask you a question. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of, what are the next two words? Say it out loud. Here is this Nazarene growing up in Hicksville, Israel. And he now has the big dudes right in front of him. And he straight up calls them hypocrites. <laughs> you didn't do that in that day. You didn't do that. But the second person of the Trinity is fed up with this baloney that's going on. And he's not scared of these boys. By the way, he created them. Game on. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? Pause. Doug, you're never going to get through this. I know. I know. But uh, one more comment before we read some of the more. Do you see what he just did? They were coming at him talking about the oral law issue, about the traditions of the elders. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes it right back to Scripture. No, no, it is written. He's bringing their oral, their oral issue, tradition of the elders, he's bringing it right back to God's Word. By the way, so should we. No, let's debate it. Let's debate it oral. You know, oh, I think this. Well, I believe this. Well, I'm on this. Honestly, who cares? The issue is, what does this say? And Jesus is living out and he'll do it again here in just a minute. Okay, let's keep going. Sorry. Uh, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written uh, out of Isaiah? Uh, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Wow. He is pulling a passage of the Old Testament and he's applying it to them and saying, you guys are these hypocrites. 
And in it, when he's talking, he's basically saying, you do lip service honor and you do lip service worship, but... And you can see in there, but your heart, by the way, Jesus responds back, present, active, continuous. Hey, Jesus, I see your disciples are presently, actively, and continuously defying the traditions of the elder. Okay, hypocrites, here's the deal. You guys are presently, actively, and continuously far from me. There is no relationship going on. There is no relationship with the Lord. It's all honor and worship lip service. But there is no relationship. It's religion, no relationship. He says, but your heart is far from me and your worship is in vain. The word means it has no end, no purpose, no benefit. You do it again and again and again and again. And the reality of redemptive history in your time, it means nothing. La, 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 la. How sad. And... You teach doctrines. It's really kind of in the Greek. You teach teachings coming from men. You're not teaching God's stuff. You're teaching man's stuff. And he sums it up in verse 8. Kind of he went to the Old Testament and now he's restating it now. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You leave the commandment of God And you hold to the tradition of men. I have to ask the question right now before we proceed further. In what way, not if, in what way in your life are you doing the same? In what way are you leaving the commandments of God and following the traditions of your family, the world, the culture, your own thinking? Because what's happening here is by the Pharisees and the scribes, there's no surrender to God. There's no submission to God. It's all a game. And what they've really done is they've pushed the Lord off of the throne along with the word of God off of the throne. And they've sat down and they've written their own guidebook to God. And that's a problem. And that's a problem. In verse 9, Jesus, almost repeating exactly what he just said, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And friends, we often have a fine way in our day to do the same. I believe I think, I was taught, well, the Pope said, no, a professor said, no, my spiritual mentor said, no, the big pastor dude on the radio said. But what does God say? What does God say? He has written what he wants us to know. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. What does God say? Passage and verse in it, grammatically, historically, contextually understood. By the way, do you know Philippians 4.13, the pull-up verse? The, you know, the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I was a kid in camp at Eagle Lake in Colorado, I still remember doing pull-ups. And yeah, I wasn't so great at pull-ups then either. And uh, so I'd get, you had to do 10 like to pass the thing. And I'd get to about eight and I'd bottomed out. And everybody's like, 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I maybe got to nine. I don't ever think I got to 10. Wimp. Anyway, so that verse does not mean that at all. Do you know that? That verse does not mean you can do anything you want like it's some kind of passage. So Philippians 4.13, you go and you look on the context. Here, what we do is we grab scripture and we have a tendency to take passage of scripture and take what we love, take what we like, take what we need at the time. And here what's going on is Jesus has just uh, categorically rejected their man-made external focused religious system that, by the way, included God's word manipulated to approve their thinking. And Jesus is like, I don't do that. Verse 9, you have this amazing way. You have this amazing ability of presently, actively, and continuously leaving. And presently, actively, and continuously rejecting. Presently, actively, and continuously reorganizing the words and the commands of God in order to make your thing the thing that stands. And Jesus is like, you don't do that. You don't do that. Verse 10. He goes to scripture again. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, fifth commandment. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now, some parents right now are like, I'm using that one this week. I'm so using that one. Okay, I'm not going to go there. Um, Verse 11, but you say, If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, parentheses, that is given to God. I'll explain it here in just a second. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. What was going on? They were using God's word in the culture as a loophole to get out of obedience to God. Let me explain. In the Old Testament... Exodus 21, Exodus 20, Leviticus 20, God decrees that there is a death penalty for those who will curse their parents or treat them with contempt. And by the way, it's not just children. It's adults. Kids, God is serious about you obeying your parent or parents. Hear me? God is really serious about that. Now, it's not just for kids, though. But the fifth commandment also had an application going to adults. And back in that day, it was actually part of the understanding was that you cared for your aging parents. There's a new concept. And in can we'll go there. You cared for their new parents, but what ended up happening is in the culture, there was this term called korban. It meant, as it tells us, uh, what does it mean? Given to God. And so what they would do is they would use this kind of culture thing and they would declare on their goods the things that they own. They would go, Corbon! I declare a Corbon oath on my house, on my property, on my camel, on my car, on my things. And out of that, what would happen is, is Corbon meant that that was then set apart unto the Lord. Now, the interesting thing about it was, is when they declared that, they did not pick it all up and then take it over uh, to the temple. No, 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 no. It was for some day in the future it would be applied after they died. And they don't care. 
And during the time, they could still use it. Nothing changed except for this. When you give an oath, and then later your parents are in a need for some help and financial, and you go, Mom and Dad, I would love to help you in your whole situation here, but I'm sorry, all of my assets were korban to the Lord, and that's an oath, and Scripture says you can't break an oath. I can't sell that to help you. Loophole. It was a total financial crock of a loophole. And so in it, they're like, okay, so you're saying that we did something wrong? What is it? Jesus nailed them because you're corboning everything. And in that, notice towards the end of what Jesus says, uh, verse 12, then you no longer permit him to do him for his father or mother, verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things do you do. Again, Jesus is like, you want to play the externals game? I, I got it. Let's talk about Korban. And by the way, the whole Korban thing is just the beginning of the mountain of problems. Notice in the text, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Verse 13, thus making void the word of God. Jesus has a high view of his word. And they were leaving it, they were rejecting it, they were voiding it, they were walking away, and they were manipulating God's word to their benefit by using God's word. It's kind of like this today. Well, the scriptures say that God is love. So since God is love, everyone goes to heaven. I wish that were true. But you also have to understand the word of God says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then on it, well, God is love, so there, there can be no hell. Hell is just a figurative thing in the Bible. Really? I wish that were true. Uh, God is love, therefore there's no problem with any kind of same-sex relationship. Because God is love. God is love. That means all religions lead to God. That is the most ridiculous statement. Because if that's true, God is an absolute schizophrenic. Just take God's word, take the Quran, take the Buddha Bible... Take the Mormon Bible, put them all together, and that, if that is true, is one messed up God. And we use these kinds of things for our benefit to help us process what we might struggle with. Uh, And we can't do that. Friends, God is serious about his word. He's serious about protecting it, and he's serious about us knowing it. That's why we're the kind of church where I say, bring your Bible, have it open on your lap. I'm convinced if you are not opening your Bible here on Sunday, you don't during the week. And we're to do it together. Bring your Bible, have it open, get used to it, smell it. And if you have the digital thing, uh, we'll pray for you. (laughs) I just want to say, it's not the Bible plus It's not the Bible minus, it's the Bible, Bible. And if you're not sure about that, read Revelation 22, 18 through 19, where it is said, don't mess with my word. Don't add to it. 
Don't take from it. Take it as it is. Friends, we are to align our thinking and our theology with God's word. We do not align God's word with our thinking and our theology. Okay, let's move into the last section and we'll wrap it. Verses 14 to 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them. Now it sounds like a whole nother uh, story, but it's not. You kind of have the picture that he's been talking with the Pharisees and scribes, but now he kind of turns to the people and says, okay, I'm kind of, maybe it's like, I'm kind of done with you guys. Let me talk to all of you. And so Jesus pulls them all together and he said, and he called the people to him again and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. Again, the Bible and Jesus Christ wants to, is, is intended to be understood. Verse 15 Hear me, all of you, understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What's Jesus doing here? Very simply, it's this. He's going after the heart. He's going after the heart. Listen, you can play the dress-up game and the religious game, and you can be the Christian check-the-box game. Had my quiet time today, check. I, I, read, I read a paragraph or I read a chapter. Yeah, I prayed, you know, before a meal and, uh, you know, did that and, and, and check. And, and, uh, and I kissed my wife goodbye, going to work, check. Okay, God and I, we're good. Hey, some of us need to give up the checklist and get into relationship with. Because I guarantee you guys who are married, if you're like checklist with your wife, she's like, bag the checklist and take me on a date. Right, ladies? <laughs> okay, and, okay, now it's coming back to you. <laughs> okay, get the log out of your eye first. Okay, so got it? And Jesus is taking And Can you just see how it happens? And friends, it naturally happens with us. We get so caught on the external and we think by the externals that we are drawing more of God's love to us. The more righteous I am on the outside, the more love God pours to me. And that's not true. You cannot, if you are redeemed in Christ, you cannot get more of God's love. You have it all. Stop working so hard. Stop trying to be the stud monster for Jesus. And love him. Be amazed by him. And let that saturate you. If you're struggling with anger, if, if, if you're struggling with a critical heart, if you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling with uh, finances and greed, oftentimes we end up just organizing the externals of it. But it's got to start with the, the heart really up here. You see, otherwise, what we're doing is we are just rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. And it's still going down. It may look prettier going down, but it's still going down. And Jesus is just like, I love you enough to tell you. It's, that's a game. And that's all in your head. Jesus is saying, I don't work that way. 
I'm interested first and foremost in your heart and what is going on in your heart. And if you're not sure what the heart is, let me say this. There's a second grade boy in class sitting at his desk. The teacher, let's just call him Doug. The teacher (laughs) says to the little boy in second grade, he says, Doug, I'd like for you to stand up next to your desk and spell the spelling word, one of the spelling words that they have for that week. And Doug says, I don't want to stand. I'll do it sitting, but I'm not going to stand. The teacher says, no, no, no. You need to obey what I say and you need to stand next to your... No, I want to sit and do it. No, okay, here's the deal, Doug. Either you stand next to your desk or go to the principal. So Doug stands next to his desk and he says, I may be standing on the outside, but I'm sitting on the inside. That's the heart. That's the heart. And parents do not raise external moral children. You need to get at the heart. Jesus is all about the heart. By the way, verse 16. Look at verse 16. What does it say? Okay, now if you have the New American Standard, there's parentheses and it says something like, if you have hears to hear, let them hear. If you have an English Standard Version, which is what I'm using, a New International Version, what's it say? There's nothing there. I don't have the time, uh, but I will just say this. Um, uh, over uh, manuscripts, there is, is noted there. It's just an integrity of the translations of the scriptures. Uh, it's this. Over time, there are some manuscripts that only a few have this in there. And so we note it when we come to these variant kinds of texts. Let, let me say this to you, though, to give you some confidence in God's word. Uh, history, Plato. We have only seven original manuscripts from Plato. Oh, by the way, they're not from Plato. The seven original manuscripts we have, the closest one to the time of Plato is actually 1,200 years later. We only have seven of them, 1,200 years from the original. Okay, then we have Homer, and we're not talking Homer Simpson. We're talking, (laughs) culture changes. (laughs) We're, We're talking Homer's Iliad. With Homer's Iliad, today, we have 643 manuscripts. From seven to 643. By the way, no secular uh, critical text person is going to argue the validity and the, the, the trust in what we have with Homer's Iliad because we have 643 original manuscripts. By the way, the closest of those manuscripts to the original was 500 years away from the original. Now we get to the New Testament. The New Testament, we have over five. 1,600 manuscripts of the New Testament. And out of those, the closest one to the original is only 100 years. And you will never see anyone argue Homer's Iliad, but you will always see people arguing the New Testament, and yet it is stunning. That's all the time I can spend on that. So when you see a verse like that, I just want for you to know, it's not like, what's the deal with this book? No, no, there's enough integrity for us to be able to say, most likely one of the translators or a few of the translators along the way put a comment in like, amen, if you have ears to hear, listen to what he's got to say. Okay, it doesn't change the meaning, anything. Okay, I got to move on and we wrap it up here. 
Verse 17. There is a 17, right? And when he had entered the house, left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. The parable of nothing on the outside of a person goes into him is what defiles him. And he says to them, uh, guys, are you still not understanding? It's just a reminder. God wants to be understood. And by the way, for you and I, it's a reminder like this. Hey, are you hearing what's being said? Are you understanding what's being said? Jesus is going to the heart. That's what he's most interested in. Cut the religious games. And this is all about the heart. Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? I won't do any illustrations. Parentheses. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's a whole other issue, but that's very cool. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, out of the heart of woman, come evil thoughts. I think evil thoughts, by the way, is the summary statement of this list, such as sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. The source of our problem is our heart. The core of who we are. The the central control center of who you are. It's defiled. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's what it's talking about. And here in the text, Jesus is like, listen, guys, you're, you're, you're doing this religious game, but you need to get off the game and you need to start sitting back and looking at your own heart and what's going on there. And so it's with that that I leave you today. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you've prayed a prayer. Maybe you've walked a walk. Maybe you've, I don't know. But like Mark chapter four and soils two and three, there's really been no fruit from that. There's really been no change from that. Listen, do not bank on an external act for the reality of your heart. I'm not saying that may not be real, but I am saying it may not be real. Where is your heart? Have you come to the place where you've driven the stake in the ground with Jesus Christ and surrendered your heart to him? Uh, Surrendered and, and submitted yourself to him? Lord, I'm done with me. I'm done with me. I need the righteousness of Christ because I can't do it anymore. Oh, and by the way, if you know Christ is your Savior, what's your heart like right now? What's going on within your heart? Let me ask, why do you go to work? When you're at work, when you're at school, what are you like and why? When you're at home, who are you? When you're all alone, Who are you? 
That's what Jesus is most interested in. Because he knows that when that gets right, the other stuff falls in place. You're wondering, why do I have a picture of a factory on the center screen today? You've probably been wondering that, right? Because of this. Our hearts are idle factories. Our hearts, by nature, are idolatry factories. We love to pursue after image. We love to pursue after the the assembly line of greed. We love to produce off of the assembly line of sensuality. We love to produce off of the assembly line of I'm in control. And on this particular day, Jesus is telling the Pharisees and the scribes, and by the way, the other people that he then talks to, he's telling them this. Listen, within your own heart, there is an assembly line that is naturally there that is about producing the idolatry of false religion. And it's time to shut it down. Shut that assembly line down. Because it produces nothing but the idol of yourself feeling good before God and God's not feeling good about you. So this week, where's your heart? Lord, I want to thank you for the time together and I want to thank you for the time in the passage. It's interesting to me that uh, Jesus in this account with the Pharisees and the scribes and then with the people, he actually doesn't then tell them what to do. He is going after their thinking. He's going after their heart first and foremost. He then doesn't lay out a do this step one, step two, step three. So I'm leaving it there. To where God, I would pray this week, the Spirit of God would be working on our church family, working in everyone's life here, that we would be processing through, thinking through, working through, when it really comes down to it, standing before you, what's going on in our heart? What are we really about? And God, maybe there's someone in this room that has been playing the religion game for years and decades, but in all reality, Matthew 7 is the reality that they really don't know you. I would pray, Lord, would you reveal that to them? God, for those who know you as their Savior, Lord, I would pray. Maybe uh, someone and we have been living our life just frankly generating off of what we think, what we want, what we're doing. And instead, it's time to step back and ask the question, what does Scripture say? Why am I working? Why am I going to church? Why am I doing these things? What is my marriage supposed to look like? What does God's Word have to say about it? God... Open our hearts, reveal them to us, soften us before you, and do a work.